Welcome to the Move to Value podcast, powered by Chess Health Solutions. The Move to Value podcast is dedicated to helping healthcare providers understand and make the transition into value-based care. We do this through conversations and the sharing of innovative ideas with experts and leaders throughout the healthcare industry. Our mission is to sustainably transform the healthcare experience for the patient, provider, and care team by cultivating a value-oriented, compassionate, and health-aligned community. On this episode of the Move to Value podcast, we talk with Robert Mechanic, who is the Executive Director of the Institute for Accountable Care, where he is responsible for leading its research agenda and healthcare learning and improvement activities. Rob, welcome to the Move to Value podcast. That's nice to be here, Thomas. Well, we're so glad you're here. So, Rob, tell me, what is the Institute for Accountable Care and what is its primary mission? So, Thomas, we are uh, a a fairly new organization. We're an independent, not-for-profit. We were formed several years ago, and our primary mission is building on the available research and contributing to the available research on the impact of accountable care, um, both to inform public policy and sort of future development of accountable care programs, and also to support organizations that are committed to value-based care. So I'd say we combine, we're, we're a little bit unique. We combine elements of a think tank, um, a data analytic shop, and a consulting firm. Um, we like solving complicated problems, um, preferably using empirics, data analysis, uh, half of our staff are programmers, data scientists, and statisticians. And we like to work on problems that have practical implications for organizations who are trying to improve care or for national policy. And I guess the last thing I'd say, our special sauce is we have a data use agreement with the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, where we have access to 100% of the Medicare uh, programs claims data. And obviously that allows us to ask all kinds of interesting questions and learn all kinds of interesting things. How does your work document and promote the best practices for accountable care? So I'd frame the question, Thomas, a little bit differently. Uh, as you know, organizations can put best practices in place, but you know whether they're successful, it's all about execution. And when we get into accountable care, everybody's program, for example, your care management program is gonna be different. So what we can do is we can help a particular organization or a group of organizations evaluate whether a particular program is achieving its performance goals. So does your care management program improve quality? Does it reduce spending? And because we have all this data, we we can do this sort of scientifically Um, with a a comparison group that we match to your patients in your geography, and we can look at, you know, how their spending changes compared with the spending of the group that you enroll in your programs. Um, Another area that we do to, in this kind of work, is we help organizations develop and implement best practices through learning collaboratives that we organize and we facilitate. So um, two examples of that would be, uh, we work with a, a group of a dozen ACOs, building home-based care programs. And we, we bring in outside experts, but a lot of the work is also peer-to-peer. ACOs helping each other, they're working on the same problems. And we're currently um, doing a collaborative, uh, working on addressing social determinants of health. And how do you build a strategy and how do you build the right infrastructure to have an impact? 
Well, that leads into my next question, Rob. How does the Institute for Accountable Care partner with accountable care organizations? You mentioned a couple of opportunities. What other partnerships are available? Yeah, I I mean, I think there are a couple of other uh, areas. Um, One is, you know, because of the data, we can help people understand their own performance compared to peers. So um, an ACO or a group like an ACO has all their own data of all the utilization of their patients, but they don't really see everything else that's happening around them. So what we can do is we can, you know, look at other providers in their market, or we can look at other providers nationally that are trying to do the same thing that they are. And we can say, gee, you know, are you doing better and worse than them? Um, Can we identify why? Are there certain areas, you know, you're doing great in managing hospital care, but you're not so good in keeping people out of uh, nursing homes and rehab hospitals? So we can help organizations with that. We have a number of partnerships. Um, We've also built a whole infrastructure to model um, the benchmarks, which are the spending targets in accountable care programs. And so uh, we work with some ACOs to help them think, well, we'd like to, you know, we'd like to add all these groups to our ACO. How is that going to affect our spending target? We want to start a brand new ACO. Um, How many beneficiaries would this ACO be able to bring to the table? And, you know, what does our cost profile look like? So we do that kind of work with individual organizations. Um, And, you know, it all ties back to the the data um, and being able to ask questions of it. That's great. Um, So, Rob, during your presentation at the Move to Value Summit, where you were a presenter in February of 2022, you talked about how the concept of regression to the mean can undermine the use of historical expenditures as a way of predicting future spend. Can you touch on your findings again briefly? Sure, absolutely. Well, so um, the regression of the mean kind of is a is a term, it's a concept for people who are uh, groups of patients who are very high spending tend to move back towards the mean spending naturally over time. So when you look at your highest spending patients, those people generally have had, you know, serious acute illnesses. So they may have been hospitalized. Um, they may have underlying chronic conditions. In fact, many or most of them do. But it's the acute spending that really, or the acute illness that really drives the high spending. So a lot of those people, they get sick, they spend a lot of money, and then they get better. And so they revert back to the mean. That's important because, you know, some people will say, well, let's just, you know, let's do a pre-post and let's look at these patients. Gosh, they're high cost. Let's put them in our program. Look how much we saved. And it's very important. In the old days, you know, there were companies that um, did disease management and they come to organizations that we can do this and they show them the pre-post data and wow, we saved 40%. But if you had done, had no intervention with those patients, their costs still would have gone down. So you have to dig uh, a lot more, dig deeper. And again, what researchers do is they, um, the the gold standards of randomized clinical trial, but what researchers in the absence of that will do is we do a matching process where we find patients that have the same characteristics, you know, demographics, same clinical issues and comorbidities, and we track that same group over time and we see, well, how much does the comparison group, they may go down, how much does the um, control group, the uh, intervention group go down? And so that allows you to have a more fair apples to apples comparison between the two groups. Um, so, you know, 
I guess my my take home point is you can do pre post in the very early stage just to get a sense of what's going on, but it's not telling you the whole truth. You really have to do a scientific evaluation. And, you know, if you don't have the data yourself, you have to look to other partners, a group like us, um, universities oftentimes have data and can do this. Um, but, you know, you have to really ask the questions in the right way. And what advice would you offer to our listeners if they are seeking to identify patients within their populations who are at risk of future spend? Well, so, Thomas, even though I'm a data guy, I think it's it's very important to combine work that you do with data with input from the people who know the patients best. So that means, you know, their doctors, their nurses, and their families. Um, I think it's reasonable to look at historical spending and look at patterns of spending um, as part of the question that you're asking, but you also, you know, you want to, I think you want to dive more deeply. And, you know, what I talked about at the Move to Value Summit, I was using fairly um, simple examples. Um, there are, you know, there are companies and organizations that are doing kind of very more sophisticated data analytics to try and pinpoint people who are not going to regress to the mean. Um, and there are companies like, you know, IBM Watson, <laughs> you know, the best computing resources in the world. But as you know, they've had a little bit of a tricky time. You know, they were trying to predict what's the best oncology pathway. Well, that didn't work out exactly like they thought it was going to be. So I think, you know, there are limitations to what you can do with data alone. And so I think what you have to do is really combine, you know, careful monitoring, clinical input from the people who know the patients both, and, you know, some understanding of their past and current uh, spending history. And that's the best the combining those three things are going to be the best way to predict going forward. So also during your presentation at the Move to Value Summit, you talked about waste reduction strategies in reducing cost. Can you describe how provider groups might identify opportunities to reduce waste within the populations? And then can you provide some examples of successful efforts to eliminate waste? Sure. Well, Thomas, so I think a couple of points I'd like to make just to start, which is that reasonable people can disagree about which services are wasteful and which services aren't. And the second thing, which is really key, is that, you know, one person's waste is another person's uh, paycheck. And so you have to balance those two issues. Um, I think that, you know, identifying waste, uh, you can look at your, your population. So we can look at sort of on a population basis of per member per month or per member per year. You can look at use of high cost services, um, avoidable hospitalizations, you know, hospitalizations that could have been managed with primary care if, if people uh, did it in a timely way, um, excess post-acute care utilization. Uh, we once looked at a, at a hospital that sent 85% of their joint replacement patients, they were discharged to an acute rehabilitation hospital. And, you know, nationally, you know, far less than 10% of people go to a rehab hospital. So they, uh, they of course, had their own acute rehabilitation hospital. Um, you can look at um, excess use of hospital facility-based ambulatory care and ancillaries, which generally cost twice as much as the same services provided in a physician office, um, you know, lots of high cost imaging studies, for example. So all of those things, I think, are red flags that there may be potential waste. Um, 
And then, you know, in terms of managing the waste, there are a lot of things you can do, you know, on post-acute care spending. I think, you know, really asking the questions, does this patient need to go to a nursing home? Are they safe to go home with support? Could they, you know, send home health providers or could they, you know, even go and get outpatient therapy and really ask those questions. Um, other things you might do, you know, uh, curbside consults with specialists. So, you know, that's something that Kaiser Permanente has done for years. Primary care patient has somebody in for a visit. They notice something. They call the specialist down the hall, comes and takes a quick peek. Patient doesn't have to go and, you know, schedule another visit and incur more costs. And health systems can do that, you know, actually through e-consult systems. So, you know, you can, and what you're doing is really the specialist doesn't want to see a patient who doesn't really need to see them. So you're, you know, avoiding low value visits. You're making it much more convenient to the patient. Um, so those are, you know, those are just a couple of things you could do to manage waste. That's some really great advice. Thank you, Rob. For my next question, can you describe how non-medical in-home visits might impact quality in healthcare? Yeah, um, I, I think that there are a number of ways that it can improve quality. Um, so one is building trust with the patient. And, you know, a lot of patients, frankly, uh, are distrustful of healthcare systems, particularly, you know, if they're in, you know, low income or minority populations that, you know, have had bad experiences with the system. Um, a lot of the time sending non-medical staff for in-home visits, um, organizations will try to, you know, they'll hire staff from the same neighborhoods that have, you know, a similar lived experience. So they may be sort of culturally sensitive um, to the patients that they're visiting. And it's also, you know, it's different from um, being in the office where there's a little bit of a power dynamic. You know, people look up to doctors. They may not want to tell them things that they find embarrassing. Whereas having somebody who, you know, you feel like is kind of like you coming in, it's a, it's more of a low stress environment. And it also provides the medical team with some eyes and ears because when you go into somebody's home, you really can see what's going on with them. You can, you can kind of get a better feeling for some of the things that may be affecting their health that they don't necessarily see in a formal medical visit. You know, is the patient seem to be a little bit uh, impaired? Do they have, um, you know, an abusive uh, spouse or somebody else living in the house? Uh, is the housing on, you know, their, their home unsafe? Um, they've been falling. Oh, gee, look, you know, they could, if they had some uh, simple things to you know, grab bars and ramps, um, it would be much easier for them to get around. So that's that's intel that you don't necessarily get in a medical visit. And somebody who can build trust in the patient's home can bring that back to the team, and it can definitely improve care. That certainly is a great opportunity to find out what's really going on in a patient's life. So one final question for you today, Rob. Uh, what advice do you have for providers who are trying to deliver the best possible outcomes for their patients? Well, I, I would say it takes a team to really manage a patient and care for a patient, particularly when they're uh, complicated. They have complex medical or they may have, you know, uh, complex social situations. And so I think team-based care is really better care. Um, I think it can be 
better for the individual team members because they get to do more and learn more and it's more fulfilling. Um, it's better for the patient because they get different perspectives of people who are coming from different fields and, and uh, different viewpoints. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of different ways. Again, I think, you know, a lot of, of quality and outcomes is systematic. Healthcare is so complicated. So can you build good support systems around clinicians? But also there's the personal dynamic of the team and building teams that communicate well and are honest um, and work effectively, I think, is really important um, for organizations and for the workers themselves and for patients. So, yeah, it, it takes a team to really do a good job at healthcare um, in the 21st century. Robert Mechanic, Executive Director of the Institute for Accountable Care, thank you for joining us on the Move to Value podcast today. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Thomas. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Move to Value podcast, powered by Chess Health Solutions, where our mission is to sustainably transform the healthcare experience for the patient, provider, and care team. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. As always, you can head over to movetovaluepodcast.com to sign up for the email list, as well as check out all the resources in the show notes. If you are interested in continuing to hear about value-based care and how it impacts you, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, we would love it if you would share the Move to Value podcast across social media and leave a rating and review. See you next time.